Hello from the Shakespeare and Company Reading Library. A space which you might... Come for the books, stay for the conversation. A space which you might, depending on the chapter of Ulysses you've just this minute finished reading, consider either the bookshop's belly, where the written word is consumed, masticated, ruminated upon, digested, and then... Sewage leak closes Rue de la Bougerie. Pompier mobilised. <clears throat> OK, moving on. Uh, or otherwise it's lungs, where the oxygen of ideas is inhaled, permeating the intellectual alveoli, diffusing, exchanging with philosophies and ideologies hitherto respired, before being... Keep baby quiet with new style rubber teething ring. Available now from La Samaritaine. B uh, before being... Explosion of hot air. One charged. OK, OK, point taken. But can I just... Welcome, Welcome to, to Bloomcast! When I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost lodges. Stately plump bug bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. So t tell us, Adam, who have we heard from this week? OK, um, so we had a few emails to uh, Ulysses at ShakespeareAndCompany.com. And please do write to us if you have anything, uh, anything you'd like to say, anything you'd like to share. So the first one, and I put this right at the front because I enjoy Lex being schooled by our listeners, <laughs> is from... Uh, that makes, one makes two of us. <laughs> it's from one Adam Batston or Batstone. Uh, during the first episode, Lex was reading an extract from uh, Budgeon's book about Ulysses. And uh, he mentioned the Budgeon... It was talking about a conversation he had with Joyce, and he said that Joyce was something of a lead swinger. Now, uh, as Adam Batston points out, Lex expressed some bafflement by this expression uh, and thought it meant that he was some kind of violent warrior. Well, Lex, Adam Batston goes on to say, to swing the lead actually means to be work shy or a skiver. So almost the complete opposite, in fact, of a uh, violent warrior. How do you please? I am so happily corrected. <laughs> so happily corrected. I would have never known if it weren't for our, our listeners. So thank you. Um, and so that is the kind of thing, if you do have anything, you know, we are hopefully modest people. If you do want to point out anything we do get wrong, please do, uh, please do write in. Um, Correct us, please. The, uh, the second uh, piece of correspondence I have is from uh, Maria Scholten, who makes one request, and that is that the, um, the list of guides that we're constantly referring to, and there are quite a few out there and a lot of them very, very good. Um, could we make a list of them somewhere? And so we're going to put that in the show notes. Uh, but for listeners, um, if you're wondering right now, Lex, could you just give us a rundown of the main ones that you're using? and then Alice? Tell us, Lex. So the, the companion books, which there are, are legion, but the ones that I have found um, the most helpful are The New Bloomsday Book, by Harry Blamiers, written in the 60s and since um, uh, republished. Um, the Ulysses Annotated is the most complete and comprehensive, but also uh, very nicely written um, by a man named Gifford. I'm also reading Ulysses and Me, The Art of Everyday uh, Living by Declan Kybert Kibbert. Kybert Kibbert. Uh, K-I-B-E-R-T. <laughs> pronounce it how you, how you wish. And, and really anything that Kibbert writes, Kybert writes, is going to be helpful. And Declan, if you're listening, please write in and tell, yes, we really, we tell us how to pronounce we'd, it. We'd, we'd really appreciate it. And then The Making of James Joyce's Ulysses uh, by by Frank Budgeon. Um, those are the principal ones, but now we've also seen Hastings, mm -hmm. Patrick Hastings. And and I have a new one, which I started reading this week by Terence Killeen. So this is called Ulysses Unbound. It's just been republished for the 
anniversary and it's a reader's guide to the Ulysses. Mm-hmm. And I should also add that on the subject of Declan Kybert, Kybert, okay, on the subject of, of, of Declan, um, <laughs> the he also writes the introduction to the official right. partner edition exactly. for this uh, podcast, the Penguin Classics hardback cloth bound um, edition, and it's an incredibly insightful, uh, entertaining introduction. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so do check that out as mm-hmm. well. Um, Alice, have you heard from any of our listeners this week? Uh, I heard from somebody on Twitter. This is at every Sousa wins who said, Hiya, I'm enjoying this podcast so much. I've never read it before and I finally feel motivated to have some reading in me. So hello to you and hello to an anonymous friend who told me in <laughs> passing, she said, I listened to the first five minutes and remembered how much I hate podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank so you. We, we accept all kinds of correspondence, good mm. and bad. Lex. And so I, I had a kind of a fun one uh, this last week. So a friend of mine, a filmmaker in New York, um, wrote me a note and said, is it true he had read somewhere that Martin Scorsese uh, was a great fan of James Joyce? I said, I said, I had no idea, but I was walking around and I sort of was thinking about a movie you may have seen called The Departed. Departed described by Wikipedia as a 2006 American epic crime thriller film uh, directed by Scorsese, written by someone suspiciously Irishly, Irish-sounding William Monaghan. Um, and I was thinking to myself, because I really enjoyed this movie, um, you know, Mark Wahlberg, Matt Damon, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, Martin Sheen, uh, Alec Baldwin. And uh, in Ulysses, of course, uh, it's many, many characters in this great book um, and one dead one. And the dead character's name? Uh, uh, Dignam. Dignam, okay. So those of you who have seen The Departed knows that this is kind of an inverse scenario where everybody in The Departed gets killed. The Matt Damon character gets killed. The Jack Nicholson character gets killed. The DiCaprio gets killed. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. (laughs) Spoiler, spoiler, And one of the main characters remains uh, alive at the end and played by Mark Wahlberg. And the character's name is... Dignum. Dignum. So I was wondering, I was just wondering in the back of my mind whether there was something um, a little a little funny going on there. So, um, Marty, if you're listening. So, so yes, director Scorsese, uh, please set us straight. If, uh, uh, please was, write us. Or Mark Wahlberg, if you're listening. That would be great, too. Anyway, Ulysses that was, that was company. Ulysses at com. So thanks. Well, we have a lot to get through today. So we're going to go straight into Aeolus. Um, so the... The seventh episode. The seventh episode of... Lest um, we forget. ...of James Joyce's Ulysses. And um, in a sense, uh, readers will likely probably, when they start this chapter, be so struck by the formal inventiveness that mm-hmm. suddenly appears on the page that they might lose track of what is happening when and where. So I'm going to run through very quickly the events of this chapter, and then we're going to pick up exactly on what that formal inventiveness was and what exactly it does to to the reading of the novel. So, it's noon, and with the funeral done and dusted, the mourners have returned to central Dublin. Bloom, the ad man, like the the turn-of-the-20th-century Don Draper he ain't, gets to work. He heads straight to the combined offices of the Freeman's Journal, the National Press and the Evening Telegraph to broker some ad space for one Alexander Keyes. First he meets with Red Murray, who clips out Keyes' previous ad, which Bloom then takes to Nanetti, the foreman. Now, Nanetti is a real-life Dubliner who would go on to become Lord Mayor of the city in 1906 and 1907. Joyce's Nanetti agrees to print the ad, which Bloom describes as containing a pair of crossed keys. Hold that thought. But only if it runs for three months, something Bloom will have to check with his client. He goes to the office of the Evening Telegraph to phone keys and there runs into Professor McHugh, Ned Lambert and Simon Daedalus. 
who were later joined by J.J. Malloy, Miles Crawford and Lenehan. Bloom is clearly, despite his efforts at, in at ingratiation, destined to be an outsider to this group. He gets news that Keyes is actually nearby at Dylan's auction room and hurries off to catch him there. At the same time, Lambert and Mr. Daedalus head off to the Oval, a nearby pub. Just then, Stephen enters, narrowly missing both his biological and mythological fathers. He's come to deliver Mr. Deasy's letter, and the men, on hearing the teacher's name, gossip about his separation from his wife. Miles Crawford, the editor of Freeman's, asks Stephen to write for the paper, but Stephen exhibits little interest in this possibility, instead remembering and mentally rewriting the poem he composed on Sandy Mount Strand earlier that morning. The phone rings. McHugh answers. It's Bloom. Crawford says, tell him to go to hell. J.J. O'Malloy tells Stephen he has become a figure of interest to the Dublin intelligentsia, including the mysterious A.E. Stephen is keen to know what has been said about him and offers to stand a round of drinks. Thus also determining to stand up Buck Mulligan. The group leaves the office and bumps into Bloom, breathing heavily from running back to close the deal. Keyes has agreed to take two months, he says. Crawford's response, he can kiss my ass. <laughs> Feeling the deal slipping through his fingers, Bloom offers to redesign the ad. This time, the response is even less equivocal. He can kiss my royal Irish ass. <laughs> Despite the heat of negotiation, however one-sided, Bloom notices Stephen and seems to express concern for this careless chap. The men head off to the pub, leaving Bloom alone in the streets of Dublin. So, so um, one of the things that you notice um, in this chapter, it's one of the chapters that if you're flipping through the book, uh, you know when you get there because it looks very different <laughs> from all the others. Uh, it's done in this headline, sensational headline format. And something that um, uh, Professor Kybert, Kybert Kiber points out in his book um, is that 1904 um, it was one of the first times, uh, you know, the technology that had been invented for printing uh, had had uh, advanced to the point that in 1904 was one of the first times where you could read um, on a single day about what had happened the day before. Mm -hmm. So this mm -hmm. idea, Ulysses, takes place on one day, uh, and the technology had advanced um, to kind of catch up with Joyce's idea. And Joyce was, um, you know, according to to some commentators, producing a, a counter newspaper. And mm. so the idea of, of, um, of technology changing how we read, changing how we get information, and then the presence of these huge, huge machines. Um, there's this great uh, line where Bloom, as we know, is very attuned to the consciousness of, of other beings. And he says, for, you know, the printing machine seems to talk to him. Mm. And he has this great, mm. uh, you know, coinage, S-L-L-T. How, how does that sound? Almost human the way it to call attention, doing its level best to speak. That door too, is creaking, asking to be shut. Everything speaks in its own way, suit. Uh, and which kind of is a little bit how a printer sounds, I would say. And, um, and you know, we live in a time where we anthropomorphize all kinds of mm -hmm. um, technology and where the acceleration of, in, of information uh, has only um, gotten more so. But I think uh, here on the on the doorstep of the 20th century, something very new is happening with the way we're interacting with machines, especially machines responsible for our information. Well, in fact, it's also the the dawn of the age of mass media in a way, because mm -hmm. alongside this new technology, which is, you know, the linotype and the monotype technologies, which have allowed this printing, there's also been in most European countries a massive rise in literacy. Exactly. Well. exactly. So... People are being exposed to more information than they have ever been in the history of humanity exactly. at this point, which might ring some bells for mm. uh, comparisons with our, with our current epoch. So my, my question for you two is, mm. um, is this technology and maybe technology in general in Ulysses a force for good or evil? 
in your well, view? Well, I, I, I take your question happily <laughs> and I recast your question um, because for me, it's, it's, not a, it's not a really a question of good or evil. It's, it's more, what does technology do to our speech? So mm. you had just reprised this, this fantastic passage where we hear the, the machine Sisters. speaking. How, how does that sound to you, Adam? Is that... I think Lexa did a really... Ex- Slute. Slute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go with that. I, I can't improve on, on Lexa's attempt. you be saying that all day long. Sorry. I'm also interested in the relationship between technology and human speech. In Ulysses Unbound, Colleen writes that the mechanical nature of the process tends to isolate words from their human sources. They become autonomous products of a machine age, language that could not be more removed from living speech. So in other words... Adam's just described all of these technological advancements. How do these advancements interact with the kind of human part of speech that we've been hearing over the Mm. course of Ulysses? And I think this really does have resonances for today because not only are machines given voices of their own, as we heard the machine speaking, but also um, the machines themselves kind of produce language and thoughts in a way that we've never really experienced before. So you can think about this. We encounter this all the time. When you're writing an email and and it predicts the next word for you, mm-hmm. that's that's in some way the the algorithm of your email speaking. Mm. Your spelling is checked. Your grammar is checked. Um, has anyone ever logged on to a kind of website and you get this pop up message messenger on the right bottom hand side saying, "Hello, this is Ian. How can I help you today?" And you think, "Is this Ian? <laughs> is, is, this, is this Ian? You know, you say hello, Ian." realizing this is not at all Ian, this is probably some robot. And actually, this is particularly poignant for Ulysses itself. There's a Twitter account that I would really uh, highly recommend that you follow called Ulysses Reader. And it's what um, programmers call a corpus-fed bot. And so essentially, over the last nine years, Ulysses Reader has been um, kind of eating the the novel and then um, spitting out at the rate of every 10 minutes one tweet kind of randomly from Ulysses. So I think the the question of is technology a force for good or force for evil, it, again, it's less moral, it's just more predictive. Joyce mm. is putting his figure, he's understanding something um, that is only going to kind of become more and more expressed over the course of the century. And what do you think? Mm. Um, I mean, I would also take issue with the, the question, but not in quite the same way as Alice, in as much as I think... Um, my response would be for whom? Because um, I think, for example, with Bloom, we find a man torn on this subject because I think he's definitely someone who is overwhelmed by the uh, amount of information. And this is something we'll see more in the next chapter, Lestragonians, as he sort of, he remarks on the fact that advertising is everywhere. And yet Mm. it is this advertising, this boom in advertising, which sustains him because he Mm. is an ad man. That is where his... Where, where his money comes from. And yet he doesn't seem um, completely um, completely at home with it. Whether he would consider it a force for evil, I don't know, but it's certainly a force for complication and crowding out in, in Bloom's psyche, I think. And actually, I think to the point of having too much information or being kind of subsumed by information, that is in some ways the experience of reading the book. Mm. Right, okay. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that for, for Joyce, for example, that sort of, yeah, that crowding is something which he intentionally brings to mm. to the to the reading experience yeah i see that ambivalence i see that ambivalence too here here's what i was maybe uh, getting at with the question and and um the argument for and the argument against so the argument for is something that that you touched on adam that 
technology had allowed people to educate themselves mm -hmm. and still does mm -hmm. uh, people who are all over the world if you have access to wikipedia you can learn you know who wrote the departed you know in about five seconds <laughs> which i just did uh, very which important is, which is you know we, we, we grew up with it and and but it's that's incredible from the point of view of history of our ancestors that is absolutely incredible how much information knowledge we, we can know we can look at a newspaper in seoul south korea and know if it was raining yesterday i mean almost anything we want to know is is immediately there so in that sense um what you have at the dawn of, of the 20th century is an incredible moment of possibility. Democracy requires an educated citizenry. We, it's democracy at a large scale, I should say, at a scale larger than you can see with your eyes you know, in a city. Um, you need some reliable source of information to be able to know what's good or bad uh, for your country and be able to identify risks and, and make smart decisions. Um, we're now seeing that when uh, you, you have glib headlines, like we have all, I think Joyce is really uh, satirizing um, sensational glib um, headlines, simplistic, superficial, playful, mocking, um, clickbaity, clickbaity, exactly right. That that this cheapens the flow of information. Um, it lowers the common denominator instead of raising it. And one of the things that Declan Kybert uh, says wonderfully about Ulysses, and really one of the core arguments that he makes about Ulysses, is that we've misunderstood it because uh, we think of it as uh, an incredible masterpiece that only you know PhDs and specialists can read. Whereas Joyce was of the age of mass literacy. He wanted yeah. to tell a story that could be accessible to everybody mm. um, and that captured how the average person, what the average person valued and would find mm. funny and would find touching and what they cared about. Their traumas, their, you know, bodies, their uh, their communities. And um, and the way that they looked at, at information was a big part of that. This was, you know, the argument for is that this could have been a really great moment, this mm. era of mass literacy, where we became more democratic. Certainly, mm. like the social welfare states all came from the, the, the demands of a, of a literate, of a newly literate population and newly uh, enfranchised women um, to create a more fair and just society. But as we see the argument against is information can cheapen and titillate us and, um, and uh, distract uh, those of you saw Don't Look Up, I mean, I kept thinking about the, the movie Don't Look Up uh, when I watched this. It's, it's not that the people in that movie, this, the, cli the climate change uh, satire by Adam McKay, not that the people in that movie are overtly evil. Mm -hmm. It's that humanity in this movie and in Ulysses too uh, are, is our own worst enemy. That the people in Dublin, they're not evil. It's just that they don't know how to control their technology. And this is why Aeolus, the story of Aeolus, is so important. Um, and we might just, just say in, a, in parentheses that Aeolus is the king of the winds in the Odyssey. And Aeolus helps Ulysses and his men on their way by giving them um, a piece of technology, essentially. A bag that holds all of the unfavorable winds, the winds that would keep them from getting home. And and they, they use it and they're just a little curious. They're like, oh, I'd love to use this for something else. I'd love to know what's in there. And uh, they're so close to Ithaca. They're so close to home that they can see people on the shore. And the, the curiosity of the soldiers, gets uh, of the sailors, gets the better of them. They open the bag and all the unfavorable winds blow them all the way back to Aeolus. And they, they then say, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. We, we misused this gift that you gave us. Uh, can you please help us again? And Aeolus says, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. And then most of those people never make it home. Right, and we can see the correspondences here because as, as Lex is saying, this is dominated by kind of windy words and mm -hmm. wind, the agent of rhetoric. Instability of, mm. of, of shifts of there's no kind of basis, the sense of journalism blowing with the zeitgeist. And, and we get this almost immediately. So Bloom reflects very early on. He says, 
Funny the way those newspaper men veer about when they get wind of a new opening. Mm-hmm. Weathercocks. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing as well. In Joyce's schema, the organ for this chapter is the lungs. Mm. Um, breathy. Second? It's breathy. 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 Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think also we should talk a little bit about what this does from a literary perspective too because um, one thing that I read in um, Patrick Hastings, the guide to James Joyce's Ulysses, is that these headlines were a very late addition to Aeolus. Yeah, so this I, was... I read this too. And, and so the question is, why did Joyce decide to add these? Now, there's one, one argument, you know, this is the point where the book does turn towards, I mean, pastiches are necessarily quite the right word but does start the sort of reappropriation of literary forms so this could be the just the first instance of what will be many um, but I think it also does several other kind of quite interesting um, quite interesting things certainly uh, coming back to what you were talking about Lex that sort of democratization it comes back to that idea we've talked about in previous Bloomcasts of this kind of cultural le- leveling so you know the the great books and the daily mm. newspapers mm. are in some way paperbacks, put, right? Mm. Another technology that yeah, which Molly of course is, um, right, is which Molly's reading, reading. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think also there's something more significant going on, which is um, what this does to the form of the novel, actually. Mm. Yeah. Which is that in introducing this form, which is alien to the novel and in some way considered grotesque the novel grotesque exactly i think joyce is aiming to to crack open the novel form this is his first real sort of gesture to really break apart Mm. or to break away let's say from Mm. what has what has come before um and it's always you know this is a bit of a cliche but it puts me in mind of that leonard cohen line you know there's a crack in everything there's a crack in everything that's how the light gets in you know and i think that is what joyce is trying to do with this chapter and with the inclusion of headlines. Because I, I really don't think there's been any example or any significant example since Lawrence Stern, since Tristram Shandy, mm. where somebody, a writer, has tried to upset and to crack open mm. the novel in quite such a dramatic way. And this is the point where, uh, where George does crack. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, would, I would add two things. The first is that I read, and I can't remember from where... But it's interesting that this comes right after Hades. Mm. There's a sense mm. that he's emerging from a quite somber episode, emerging from, from and Lotus death. Eater is very narcotic, very you know low energy. Right, and so and so he 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 returns to life again, and mm-hmm. then and then kind of experiments, as you say, with this mm. with this form. And the other thing that I would add, Adam, to that fantastic point is that we've been talking a lot about different characters in the novel. So the protagonists, even um, animals, machines. Uh, the city itself and I think there's an argument to be made that in this episode art itself has become a character Mm -hmm. in its own right uh, and that it has a function of its own uh, and it's operating us in a certain way and so the question of course is what is the function of art I mean I think that one of the the functions specifically of the use of um, newspaper headlines is also it's a sort of a, it's it's a sense of utility. It's a tool. One thing I perhaps should have said in the description is that actually we move between Bloom's and Stevens' day, yeah. um, monologues in mm. in her monologues, and we'll talk about this term in a bit. But we move between them within this chapter, and that's the first time that that Relax. happens. Uh, and the newspaper headlines give you give Joyce the perfect way to frame that because what do you have in a newspaper? You have different voices, different forms together on the same page. So moving on from the technology, because we've got a lot to cover. Um, 
at a trot. Lex, you have described this as a chapter of almosts. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so there are a lot of near misses. In the same way that Odysseus and his men almost get home, they see it, they see the shore in front of them, and then their curiosity gets the better of them, and they're blown back off course. Um, there are a lot of near misses uh, in this episode. So there's the obvious one of Bloom, you know, who's actually the only one trying to get real work done, um, besides, incidentally, Red Murray and Nanetti, um, who are um, interesting characters. Um, Red Murray is probably the nicest person to Bloom in the entire book. Mm. Uh, he's like, sure, we can get that done. <laughs> yeah, and Bloom yeah. actually says we. He has a we in his head. It's like, oh, someone said we, including me. Um, so, you know, Red Murray's getting, he's a working such guy, he's getting stuff done. Moment, it's, it's, it's very, very poignant. And and Nanetti, who kind of tolerates uh, Bloom, but who is another immigrant in a sense. Mm. He's a son of an Italian who's never been to Italy. He's very successful as a political, he's a, you know, on the city council and a future um, Lord Mayor. And so, you know, Bloom almost gets his deal done and then is, is thwarted uh, when the deal is in sight. Um, you have almost his acceptance. Uh, and then again, you know, you, it's, it's, it's thwarted. Uh, but you have this counterexample of Nanetti, who is another immigrant that Dublin seems to uh, want to celebrate. Um, you have all of the oratory and rhetoric. They're quoting speeches from court cases or quoting mm-hmm. speeches from a debate about the Irish language. And Stephen is despite his better self, finds himself being kind of captivated and seduced by um, these great uh, these great speeches. And he kind of sees himself, he sort of like catches himself and says, no, 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 I, I, I can't allow myself. I, sh- I need to actually you know, break free of these influences and, and create um, some original uh, work myself. Uh, so Stephen almost gets seduced by by this oratory, which is the main kind of um, windiness of the of the scene in Miles Crawford's office. Uh, and then you have, of course, the um, near miss of Irish nationalism, that Irish nationalism had that almost famous achieved near miss. <laughs> several near misses, right? That the Home Rule Bill had almost passed under Parnell. It didn't. Um, and Parnell was was disgraced for a personal scandal. And you have this incredible wit and culture that is celebrated by Professor McHugh, by Crawford, you know, Simon Dedalus, a great, great singer. And um, but they're all talk. They're all wind mm-hmm. and and no action. They're unable to collectively throw off the yoke of the of the uh, of the imperial master in the same way that Greece, you know, their great exemplar was um, subsumed by by the Roman Empire. Um, the parable of the plums, these two old women uh, who also represent kind of the path of the Irish nation. They get to the top of Nelson's Nelson's uh, pillar and they almost get their goal, which is seeing the city. But they they are they're scared. They can't look at the city and they can't look up at the statue. And so they spit the plum, the plum seed. Um, and I th- also think the use of newspapers is a, is a near miss, mm-hmm. right? That J- Joyce really wants newspapers to be a force for education, art, democracy. Of course, his work had also been serialized in periodicals. So, you know, the press mm-hmm. was was uh, his instrument of, of um, you know, diffusing his own work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the satire and the tone mm-hmm. of this, we realize that Joyce thinks that, gosh, you know, so, so much crap in the news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's just it's so, so underperforming. Uh, from what it could be. And I think, you know, that some of that uh, is still in the in the mix in our world today. Mm. So those are some of the almost that I wanted to, to point out. I think one question we might ask after that fantastic summary of almost is, is why? Why are there all these near misses and mm. what can possibly explain them? And I think um, we had mentioned previously that Joyce is really sensitive to this idea of speech um, and, and kind of what is speech doing here? And I think thinking about Lex had just mentioned rhetoric, I think, and also thinking about um, writing on the level of form, he's thinking really seriously about the role of rhetoric mm. 
in this much. episode. And so, there, you know, there's a really long and serious tradition of rhetoric that starts with Plato, Aristotle, moves to Cicero, Horace. They refer to Cicero. They say, mm-hmm. recently discovered fragment of Cicero, Longgin- our lovely land. Longinus, St. <laughs> Augustine, you know, and... and it, it's it's been it's kind of been theorized over the years, mm. and I wanted to read this um, from Terence Killeen because I think he he kind of really puts his finger on the role of rhetoric in this episode and, and why um, Joyce is kind of bemoaning the fall of it. So he writes, um, rhetoric, whether legal or public, is meant to be kinetic, to move the listeners mm. to do something. This is really important. Here it is entirely static, existing in a void, remote from any action. Fine words are gone over, recalled, summoned up from a past in which they might once have had real effects. Here they are merely rehearsed, savoured for their formal qualities, their content, if any, disregarded. Yes, these people of connoisseurs are connoisseurs of oratory. They are easily able, able to tell the difference between the real qualities of Taylor's speech and the thro- frothings of Dan Dawson. But this connoisseurship makes no difference to their actual situation. As the editor puts it, you and I are the fat in the fire. We haven't got the chance of a snowball in hell. Wonderful. Mm. I wonder about the connection between that point and rhetoric and advertising in that case. Because, exactly. I mean, what, what is advertising if Persuading not... Persuading you to buy something. Empty rhetoric. Yeah. Empty right. rhetoric. And, and, uh, and advertising is all over this, uh, this, uh, this chapter... Um, as well as in Lestragonians, um, we'll, we'll come back to. Mm. Um, and of course, Alice, you mentioned um, Cicero mm. earlier, um, and the Romans infuse this chapter as well, right, Lex? Yeah, and and, and the yet again we, we saw in Telemachus the dynamic of of empire and of trying to decolonize Ireland, Ireland being the first colony of of the British Empire, and the um, parallels with Greece. So Ulysses is a parallel of a Greek epic, and Ireland is, uh, like Greece was, dominated by an imperial master. And in the case of of Greece, um, the Romans, you know, were not looked at as great originators of culture. They were looked at as great assimilators and builders. And so um, Professor McHugh, who's kind of the voice of the erudite Irishman in this in this chapter, um, says that uh, English civilization, like the Roman, is a matter of sanitation rather than of culture. And which, you know, put put in my mind the the phrase from Monty Python, what do the Romans ever do for us? You know, there's a sanitation, you know, all that stuff. Aqueducts. And, and the wine. Um, aqueducts. And, and, and there's something really kind of, I, I think, very interesting there about you know the british empire being one as they say of 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 cash and uh, and water closets mm-hmm. um that uh you know there's I, I feel kind of ambivalent about this because on the one hand yes we want to be on the side of catholic chivalry and greek intellect as the as the inhabitants of miles crawford's windy offices but of course you know it's the capitalist um system and the 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 rise of public health that also made a lot of the comfort of the 20th century possible. And so, you know, you, you can't just say that the British Empire was wrong or the Roman Empire was wrong, um, or at least you can't say it without at least having to ask the question, what did the Romans ever do for us uh, in a more in a more serious way? So it's it's hard to know. We also want to be we all want to be on the side of the of the um, of the David versus the Goliath. But when it comes to things like public health uh, and sanitation, I think these guys are maybe uh, not giving it its due. Mm. Mm, I think also it connects to um, this idea of uh, systems shaping society as exactly. well. So we you know you That's mentioned it. they talk about the 
the sewage system. And this is something which which comes up several times, actually, in um, in Ulysses. And in, at this moment, they refer to it as the cloacal mm. system. And of mm. course, you know, this is this is mm. taking the city and turning it into a body. And I think yeah. this is something which, you know, we should put a pin in that thought for when we come to Lestragonians, because I think that becomes even more mm. significant at this point. But before we move on, um, we should talk about a few noticeables yes, from yes. Um, this chapter. So, anything that readers might want to want to pick up on or stick a pin in. I have a, I on. have a noticeable, which is that um, there is he. So Joyce, I mentioned rhetoric, um, kind of the idea of rhetoric being emptied out and and all for naught in some ways. But there are just so many noticeables over the course of the episode where Joyce is playing with various types of rhetoric, and this comes on a hundred. Page 148, this is an example of chiasmus, which is to say the inversion of the order of words in pa- parallel clauses or sentences. So the, senten- the second sentence starts from the end of the preceding one and runs back through it again to its beginning. So I'll read it <laughs> and you can find it. And then you can also look up and, and discover other um, moments, many, many moments of rhetoric in this episode. So it goes... Grass booted draymen rolled barrels, dull thudding out of prince's stores, and bumped them up on the brewery float. On the brewery float bumped dull thudding barrels rolled by grass booted draymen out of the prince's stores. I mean, these two senses mm-hmm. are saying exactly the, the same yeah. thing. Mm. This is Joyce having a lot of fun, and mm. he has a lot of fun over the course of the episode, so look out for these moments of rhetorical fun mm-hmm. which actually connects to one noticeable i wanted to bring up was about this is in aeolus we get the second riddle of the book mm. um so <laughs> we had stephen setting um a riddle to his students and now we have lenehan. the the uh, lenehan right talking mm. about the um rose of castile the rose of castile exactly um and i have to say this i love the lenehan is struggling and not quite getting this riddle out in front mm. of in front of the, his, his buddies and then at one point he just says silence what opera resembles a railway line reflect <laughs> ponder excogitate reply and i'm going to use reflect ponder excogitate reply uh in front of my students uh, this week whether they like it or not <laughs> it reminds me not. of a maths teacher i had at school who's, who had the technique of Pose, pause, and pounce. Pose, pause, and pounce. You pose like the that. question, you pause while all of the boys sweat as they try and work it out, and then you pounce. Paulson, answer. Peas, peas, peas. I feel, I feel my temperature rising just thinking about the nerves. Okay, uh, other noticeables, Adam. Um, well, again, I, this just comes back to the final thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which I've already made reference to, the, this being the first chapter where we pass between Stephen and Bloom. It's also the first chapter where we break away from both of them Mm. and head briefly into the streets of Dublin. Now, this is something which is going to become more important in in Lestragonian. So once again, I'm going to put a pause on that and we'll perhaps move on. So a couple couple of noticeables that I had. So uh, you mentioned the keys and we shouldn't uh, finish without mentioning the symbolism of keys and the cross keys. Now, we know Stephen has uh, left his left the Martello Tower vowing never to go back. So he is um, doesn't have a key to anywhere to sleep. The key is throughout. This is quoting Blamers here. The instrument of entry, which ends exclusion and alienation. Bloom has also left house without his keys and we we see him jump the jump the wall um later on in the book uh when he goes back with Stephen and so the two crossed keys i think are are also a symbolic of um Bloom and Stephen why they are wandering they're looking to be included and and to and to return home so that's the the bit about the keys um there's a moment where the typesetter uh where Bloom sees him reading backwards because of course when you set the type the all of the words are are printed backwards and it reminds him of his father reading Hebrew from mm-hmm. right to left and um his reaction is not one of 
you know, an Orthodox Jew, you know, in reverence, it's it's kind of one of nervousness and um, and uh, slight awkwardness. And so Blamir says, you know, Bloom, we see here no more comfortable with his Jewish orthodoxy than he is with Catholicism mm-hmm. or his Irish identity. So he's again, Bloom, we see here um, in, in betwixt and between. Um, and then the last thing, not I, a part of any wheeze. Not say. a part of any weaves, exactly, except briefly with with um, with the good old good old Red Murray, and then at the very end, um, Stephen is is cooking up his parable of the plums, his kind of moment of artistic inspiration, and he realizes after all of this windiness, and after his own kind of pretensions to captivate the group that that uh, um, that only work in a, in a kind of a medium way, they don't really laugh at his at his uh, his parable, um, although he has this great line about Nelson being the one handled adulterer. Because he had been a one-armed guy, and he was also had a had a, a, a adultery scandal, the one-handled adulterer, uh, and he says Stephen to himself, Dublin, I have much, much to learn. So again, Stephen is is not the same Stephen he was at eight a.m. He's he's growing a little bit throughout his day. He's opening himself up a little bit um, to uh, to learn something new about the world. Lestragonians. Lestragonians. Shall we recap it? Lestragonians. So yes, we we shall. In fact, I shall. Lestragonian starts at 1 p.m., so 13 hours for those of you listening in France. It takes place in Sackville Street, Kildare Street, and the National Museum, broadly. We begin with Bloom, who is wandering the streets of Dublin when he hears about the imminent arrival of the American revivalist preacher, Dr. John Alexander Dowie. And so here we are riffing on kind of rhetoric and advertising and the commercialization of religion. He sees Dilly Dedalus, Simon's daughter, Stephen's sister, and remarks that her dress is in flitters, so this kind of poverty of the Dedalus family. He buys some cakes. He's hungry, he buys some cakes, but he ends up breaking them up and throwing them into the River Liffey. They're ultimately eaten by birds. It's, it's a lot of wandering and seeing. So he then sees a procession of the Healy's men, uh, five white-smoked sandwich men, kind of sad figures. We're going to encounter them, apparently. Each one with a big H or E or L <laughs> on their... That's on, their job. On their on their um, placard. Uh, he runs into Mrs. Rosie Breen, uh, inquires about her ailing husband. Uh, their conversation is interrupted by a fantastic figure whose name is Cashel Boyle O'Connor Fitzmaurice Tisdale <laughs> Farrell, uh, who has been off his chump quoting ever since he <laughs> fell into a vat at um the guinness's bury brewery uh so it comes me too yeah. <laughs> off his chump. That, that expression off his chump just comes so naturally from you Alice. <laughs> i'm feeling very on my chump this morning adam um he sees two um parnell's brother john howard parnell so that kind of opens up musing on on parnell um he's hungry uh, mm. He's 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 listening to his body. He's an embodied character. He goes into Davy Burns's quote moral pub, um, and has a nice glass of wine, has something to eat, and and the glass of wine allows him to kind of relax from somewhat frenetic mental energy, uh, allowing lots of memories to kind of come rushing forth. Notably, beautifully, uh, one of um, the most beautiful scenes in Ulysses that I've read so far. But apparently um, this is really a standout scene. This is a scene uh, from a time on Howth Heath with Molly. Um, and they're exchanging lovers' vows and tokens. Uh, the, this, All of this musing is kind of uh, interrupted by a call of nature, takes him into the yard. 
Um, he, he goes to the loo, um, listening to the call of reality, uh, leaves the, the moral pub, helps a blind man across the street. I'm skipping along here. And finally, while walking, sees Blazes Boyle, quote, the worst man in Dublin and hides. So ultimately, uh, and here, here I'm quoting my friend Killeen, who I spent a lot of time with this week. He writes, as is evident from the summary, nothing much happens in this episode. Bloom meanders along through Dublin centre, has the odd encounter, reflects on this and that, has a bite of lunch, makes his way to the museum. Something almost happens. Here we are with this again. He nearly runs into Blazes Boylan, but this encounter, which would have been dramatic enough, does not occur. And in fact, never occurs. Spoiler in the course of the book. So the significance of the episode lies not on the level of incident, but rather on the level of internal processes, mm. both psychic and physical. Yeah. And yeah. I would probably add also um, literary as mm. well, because mm. I think mm. once again, um, there's, once again, exactly, there's something um, that, that happens from a point of view of, um, of, of, of storytelling, from a point mm. of view of you know, what Joyce is doing with the book, which is a significant turn, um, which we'll come on to in a minute. So if Aeolus is um, all about the winds, the sense and nonsense that uh, <laughs> we emit from our lungs, uh, this is this uh, episode is very much about the belly. Mm. Um, it's midday. Um, we start thinking about what we're going to snack on for lunch. And um, so the first question I wanted to pose, group, you, you <clears throat> see uh, Bloom enter one place called the Burton, and uh, Joy says, stink gripped his trembling breath, pungent meat juice, <laughs> slop of greens. See the animals feed men, men, men. His gorge rose, couldn't eat a morsel here, uh, which, of course, turns all of our stomachs as well. <laughs> when we read that, we're ready to leave the place just as fast as he is. Um, and then he gets to Davy to Burns where he has a nice uh, gorgonzola uh, sandwich. cheese sandwich and, and, a, and a glass of burgundy wine, mm. which you will, if you come to Bloomsday, Shakespeare & Co. or any Bloomsday celebration worth its <laughs> gorgonzola and burgundy, they will serve you gorgonzola and burgundy. Um, and um, so he, Bloom also um, tangles with the question of, of vegetarianism. Mm. And at one point, mm. he, a noble cause. he kind of makes fun of the vegetarian theosophists. And then he kind of reconsiders a couple of pages later. So I'm curious... Um, um, what did you guys make of the the role of vegetarianism, meat eating, eating in general uh, in this episode? I think you're absolutely right when you say it's a chapter about the the, the processes. I mean, Patrick Hastings um, compares the the writing in this book to uh, peristalsis. You know, the process of mm. the the intestine kind of contracting and churning. and retracting and churning, and uh, uses peristalsis to refer to how Cashel or Boyle Tisdall, whatever. A walks around the the lampposts and right. walks through the the, the streets. So peristalsis, yeah. right, is in a couple of places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think um, food and processes are everywhere. So it, when we met Bloom at the beginning of Calypso, food was already there, mm. but it was more a something that was external to to his it was part of his ritual. Exactly, yeah. and he was also he was fantasizing about what he was would eat. He was deciding what he would eat. Here we're really the the process of of eating of. Uh, thinking about food is is internalized. Bloom is hungry and he is looking for food, but he's also distributing food as well. There's a moment where uh, he pities the gulls that he sees wheeling. Mm. So he he gets, what is it, a um, Banbury cakes, I think it is, breaks them up and throws mm. them down mm. into the Liffey uh, for the gulls. So I think there's something both internalized and externalized about, um, about the idea of digestion and the idea of of systems. And so once again, Joyce's schema. This is the this is the intestine. This is the gut. So this is 
this is the chapter in which Bloom is essentially moving through the digestive system of Dublin here. And that, of course, refers back to what we mentioned a moment ago about the sewage system and the cloacal system, the kind of the Dublin as a as a living organism bigger than either Bloom or Stephen. Oh, we're really in the belly of the beast. Yeah, yeah absolutely. What do you think? Did this did this chapter, Alice, make you want to be a vegetarian? Oh, I mean, I doubled down on my vegetarianism. And I think it's not surprising that somebody, I, I mean, I, there's historically people have been vegetarians um, for, for millennia, but um, somebody who's as sensitive to mm. the feelings and sensations mm. and consciousnesses of not only humans, but as we keep saying, animals, machines, cities, octopi, octopi uh, even even the form of art itself um, would kind of be so shocked by this scene. And really, it, it kind of centers on the men, men, men. Maybe an experience. Gonna... Maybe an experience that um, many of you are having as you read this book. I'm certainly having it. We've talked a lot about men, and I promise you, mm. we're gonna. I promise you that we'll talk about women um, and, and the role of women because we talked briefly about women in the first episode and how they were so important to the creation behind the scenes um, uh, of Ulysses. But we're really going to get into it. So I want to I want to pick up on what you just said, because I think this is critically important, how gender and eating interact in this um, in, in this episode. You go through a lot of cities um, outside of, let's say, um, for lack of a better word, the developed world. And um, you see a lot of men on the street and fewer women uh, in a lot of cities. And this is a uh, a book about public spaces. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things Joyce is commenting on is how when you have a public space that's dominated by men, mm -hmm. it can be very animalistic. <laughs> when you have any space, it might be dominated, dominated by, by men. Yeah, whether it's this <laughs> restaurant, Burton, or a carriage, you know, going to a funeral... Or a, or a windy you know newspaper office, you're going to get a male perspective. You're mm. going to get um, maybe the the a very unbalanced part of human society. So Lestragonians are a race of cannibals, right? Mm. And so, in so the now Odyssey, we're talking about the Odyssey. Now, we're, yes. So the Odyssey, um, uh, you know, they're they're eating around a table, and then all of a sudden Odysseus looks over, and Lestragonians are eating some of his men. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's you know again men without uh, a balancing force um, of women, and Bloom in a sense um, is more feminine than any of the men around him, more mm -hmm. sensitive, more um, caring for others. And and so we see in this in this line about vegetarianism, uh, after all, there's a lot in that vegetarian fine flavor of things from the earth. Garlic, of course, it stinks, Italian organ grinders, crisp of onions, mushroom truffles, truffles, pain to animal too. So he, he's thinking about vegetarianism both from the standpoint of it's better for our bodies. Mm -hmm. You know, like he took the bath. He's he's actually very interested in, um, you know, well-being for his body, but also empathy. That that uh, a very good reason not to eat meat is all the suffering mm. that animals uh, that we inflict on animals, and that is a hundred years later absolutely the case. And I hope mm -hmm. when Ulysses. Uh, celebrates its its 200th birthday. People will be looking back on us and our I, generation, I really think, being like, "What what were I they doing so. to I cause so, so much suffering so. to yeah. animals?" And yet again, James Joyce is ahead uh, is ahead of the game on this. So. And and even this, we mentioned systems and and systems thinking, and this has become incredibly uh, fashionable and and quite and frankly quite important nowadays. Is to, because the problems that we're dealing with, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's capitalism, whether you think that's a problem or not, or the climate crisis, that certainly is a problem. You can't think about them um, in the kind of day to day perspective. You have to take a global or kind of systems perspective. And so here again, we, we see Joyce predicting a major uh, trend. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the idea of capitalism because 
the other thing that's crucial to this um, chapter is the idea of advertising. Mm. And I'm curious yeah. to know what you both think about that idea of food and digestion sitting alongside that of advertising. Because the first thought that came to me was, can we connect this to the capitalist system? The idea yeah. of kind of mass media, of consumption, of digestion, and of ownership. Excretion. No, I think ownership. Yeah. Yes, I think you're absolutely right to, to make the par- parallel, Adam. And and one of the great lines in this in this episode, um, you know, he looks in, in the River Liffey. He's just tried to feed the birds. And he sees a, a, a rowboat with an advertisement on it for Kino's trousers. And he thinks, ah, he's an ad guy. He's like, mm, that's a good idea. You know? Yeah. Um, and, but then he says, but how can you own water really? Mm. And so I think both with man's relationship to animals, like we've seen the cattle being led out to slaughter and we've seen the people chowing down on, on all kinds of meat and a relationship with nature, with our environment, Joyce is, is really questioning our, our claims, our claims mm. to be able to control and to and to make the rules for for uh, the natural world uh, in general, and I, I think that there's something there that's um, interesting. That you know, we we like to think that the world is there for us to buy and sell it, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's advertising or, or turning it into into our into our burgers. But um, <laughs> I think Joyce is really questioning that. I I was thinking a lot about this actually, Adam, in, in this episode because I was thinking, although we we've remarked that we don't see many people working in Ulysses, I was thinking about the kind of effect of work on some of the the more minor characters. So I mentioned in my summary um, these Healy men mm-hmm. who are, as Lex pointed out, essentially wearing the advertisements for these mm. sandwiches, turning themselves from humans well, into advertising. Right, yeah. and and so. You into advertising and into letters as which well. is you know mm. people on youtube and tiktok are turning themselves mm. into mm. forces for advertising mm. they're monetizing their and yet and yet the, and yet well I, there's a difference there right because the people on youtube and on tiktok they are still kind of in control of their of their image and and they're deciding what they do these people are truly alienated from their labor in in a marxist sense in a, in a anti-capitalist sense um and same too with um Corshaw, Boyle, O'Connor, Fitzmaurice, Tisdale, Farrell. Yes, I did practice that <laughs> three times this morning. Um, he fell into a vat yeah, yeah, at yeah. Guinness's Bury. I mean, that is not... <laughs> his name might be quite funny, but that is a really yeah, yeah. stark reality mm. of, of, of the, 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 the brutality of working conditions. Mm. Mm. Having but, to make a living. Mm. Yeah, particularly at this, this time. I mean, you have to remember that this was... a when Ulysses is set was more or less contemporaneous with when Jack London was writing his People of the Abyss. Right. This is Great something which writer. we tend to we tend to forget that if it's not uh, written about directly, we forget the sort of the really harrowing conditions that a lot of people in cities with any level of industrialization were, yeah. were living in. At the I, time. Should, I should say that his question, how can you own water, was also tied in this third actor, which is the the state. So he's he's seeing this advertising. Mm. He's like, well, wow, it's a great idea for an ad. I should I should get it on a boat. And he's like, well, who would I pay to do that? And he's like, I wonder if that guy had to pay the city of Dublin, the Dublin Corporation. Mm. And then he's like, well, how can you own water? So there's all, I think there are all these questions about systems. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. is this a public good? You know, mm. should the internet be a public good? Mm. You know, is uh, that would totally change the way we think about or you know should, should, should social media a, should social right. media be a public good should right. knowledge be a public right. good yeah. as you say and and so this relationship that you know marx was was very smart about um about drawing our attention to between uh you know who owns things you know mm. in society mm. is, is it um a capitalist class yeah. is it, or now you know a bunch of tech and crypto bros yeah. or um and are they public goods and and to what extent do we own ourselves and our own information and so in terms of very data good, and privacy right. good, yeah. and what and what role you know, what role we as individuals if we are even individuals have in this in this system in these systems as they exist and i think this is 
one sort of crucial point which I alluded to earlier, which is um, something that happens, and you know, for fear that our listeners are going to think that I'm obsessed with Bloom's <laughs> visits to the toilet, um, there's you one just... very interesting moment where uh, in Davy Burns, uh, Bloom has a call of nature and he goes off to attend to it. Whereas in the in the Calypso chapter, we follow Bloom mm-hmm. to the toilet and we're there with him. In this case, we're not. We stay in Davy's Burns, and in fact, we hear um, our, the, the characters we're with gossiping about Bloom and talking about Bloom. Now, what does that do to us as readers? Very briefly, in Aeolus, we left Bloom and Stephen and went off into the streets of Dublin. But this is the first concerted departure from one of the two people which up until this moment we have considered our protagonists. And I think what this does on a literary level is suddenly make us think, okay, what is this book about? What are, What is this book doing? Mm. Is it a story about these two men or is it a story about something bigger? Because if at a moment that uh, one of the characters goes off to the toilet, we decide to stay with with some other characters and hear them talking about various things, including Mr. Bloom. What what does that do? What does that do for the novel? What what is the system in some way bigger than it's these two open. characters. And, it's cracking open. And, yeah. all, and all of these individual consciousnesses are, are connecting in a, in a, in a way right. that we don't expect. I mean, you know, Bloom yeah. brings out a couplet of Hamlet all of a sudden. And we wouldn't necessarily, Bloom, mm. you know, has, a, has not a, a, a very broad education, but is, you know, I would say broadly read, but not deeply read. And then he comes mm. out, Hamlet, I am thy father's spirit, doomed yeah. for a yeah, certain yeah. time to walk the earth. Of course, Bloom is also, and Odysseus were doomed um, to wander the earth. Mm. And mm. of course, the, the issue of Hamlet's father and the ghost is very early um, uh, in, in Stephen's consciousness as well. So is it Stephen's thought? Is it Bloom's thought? Mm-hmm. Did the thought travel from Stephen's head to Bloom's yeah, head? Yeah, yeah. So how is the, the, the thinking distributed around all of these minds in the, in the story? Which also connects to the idea of coincidence, which comes up uh, in, this, in this chapter because Bloom is thinking about Parnell's brother and then sees him immediately. Mm. And that's, he remarks on this coincidence. And then the, later on in the chapter, there's another almost identical coincidence. Mm. And Bloom reflects on this, like, what is coincidence? How are these things connected? Mm, related, yeah. And they they may be completely independent. It may be coincidence as we understand it as being events which have nothing to do with each other, you know, coming together at the same time. Or is there something at work, again, mm. bigger than Bloom, bigger than Stephen, mm. that's sort of systemic operating sort of under the surface of the mm. novel? Mm. So, Alice, we have in this episode... Um, one of, I think, both of our favorite passages uh, in the book so far. Thus far. Thus far. Um, and Bloom is, is um, after having, you know, tucked tail and ran away from the, the men and their, and their meat juice, is enjoying um, his glass of wine, his gorgonzola sandwich. And um, the wine brings a, a dream, a very happy vision, a memory. Um, so I thought we uh, would maybe read that bit. What do you think? Glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the wine-pressed grapes of Burgundy, sun's heat, it is, seems to a secret touch telling me memory. Touched his sense moistened, remembered, hidden under wild ferns on health, below our spay's sleeping sky, no sound, the sky, the bay purple by the lion's head, green by drumlek, yellow-green towards Sutton, fields of undersea, the lines faint, brown in grass, buried cities. Pillowed on my coat, she had her hair. Earwigs in the heather scrub, my hand under her nape. You'll toss me all. Oh, wonder, cool soft with ointments, her hand. 
touched me, caressed. Her eyes upon me did not turn away. Ravished over her I lay, full lips full open, kissed her mouth. Yum. Softly she gave me in my mouth the seed cake warm and chewed. Mawkish pulp her mouth had mumbled, sweet and sour with spittle. Joy. I ate it. Joy. Young life her lips that gave me pouting. Soft, warm, sticky, gum-jelly lips. Flowers her eyes were. Take me, willing eyes. Pebbles fell. She lay still. A goat. No one. High on Ben Houth, rhododendrons, a nanny goat walking sure-footed, dropping currants. Screened under ferns, she laughed warm-folded. Wildly, I lay on her. Kissed her. Eyes, her lips, her stretched neck, beating, women's breasts full in her blouse of nuns veiling, fat nipples upright. Hot, I tongued her. She kissed me, I was kissed. All yielding, she tossed my hair. Kissed. She kissed me. Me. And me now. Stuck. The flies buzzed. <sighs> Wonderful. Um, we see again how quickly the registers can change mm. from the, the everyday flies buzzing. And then he's in the most joyful memory, maybe of his whole life. Um, the moment where he had this deep connection, this sensual uh, connection um, with the love of his life. Um, June 16th, 1904, as we said, is the day in which Nora Barnacle, the love of Joyce's life, said yes and connected with, with him. Um, you know, Joyce uh, is constantly reminding us, even despite all of the exclusion and pigheadedness and men, men and fragmentation <laughs> and separation and exclusion, that that these moments of joy uh, and connective joy um, are still possible. Um, as much as he makes fun of the ridiculousness of Dublin and of human beings, um, you know, he still has um, some faith in us, and uh, and yet. You know, it's a devastating uh, moment um, as much as he savors this joy, the joy of the seed cake and and the seed, the, the insemination of uh, of bloom by uh, Molly. He um, is brought back into the here and now by mm -hmm. this sense of me and me now that this person he was seems to be different is that maybe not the person he is now and that that relationship we have with our great memories that we're reconstructing our memories uh looking backwards maybe not accurately maybe not um uh faithfully but um it's one of the most human uh things that that we all share is our relationship with with our with our memories mm, yeah no I, I think that's a really good point and it's as as the as the Bicettian in the house um i think it's really important to think about this idea of uh, what happens to memories when we can start to record them and mm. what happens um, in the intersection of memories and technology, which is to say that in this book thus far, we've had memories kind of swirling around. Um, this is stream of consciousness as a constant shifting between the past and the present. But memory, of course, is fickle when it's just being remembered in our head. What happens when different technologies come in and intersect with um, this kind of fickle memory? So whether it's cameras, you know, kind of cameras on our phone or tape recorders, 
um, that allow us to record these memories and then revisit the memories as they were kind of depicted or um, recorded. And so I, I, I think that almost to the word, um, Beckett, uh, Samuel Beckett, <laughs> our old friend, <laughs> picks up this passage um, in his play Crap's Last Tape from 1958, because in this play we have Crap, the protagonist, um, for the most part, basically listening to old recordings mm. of his memories. Um, and he describes himself as lying propped up in the dark and wandering. So mm. here we have the sense of wandering again. Um, so this is from the play. Beckett writes, he could be again in the dingle on a Christmas Eve gathering holly, the red buried. This is of one festive memory. He could equally be again on Grongham on a Sunday morning in the haze with the with the bitch. Stop and listen to the bells. So there's this idea of being again and how does technology really allow us to be a, be again in a way that kind of just thinking about the memory doesn't. And interestingly, in Crap's last tape, the memory that he keeps referring to kind of three or four times more than the other ones in terms of the recorded memory is a, is a passage that's very, very similar to the one that I've just read. And so I'll read it. Um, and I think there's... he So so Crap is kind of entering to the same headspace um, as Bloom is in the pub, although the difference, of course, is that he's listening to himself say the memory right after it just happened. Mm -hmm. So again, um, me memory has kind of progressed in some ways, or you might say devolved. So this is this is the um, the memory. I lay down across her with my face in her breasts and my hand on her. We lay there without moving, but under us all moved and moved us gently up and down and from side to side. And then the stage notes go, pause, craps, lips, move, no sound, past midnight, never knew such silence, the earth might be uninhabited. Hmm. So I, I, I just, I see the parallel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's definitely the case. Um, I mean, obviously, this is set and Ulysses is set in 1904. Mm. So, um, of course, we talked about newspaper technology, but recording technology was also in its infancy, as was radio technology right. at that point. Right. Um, and one thing that came out um, of the very interesting discussion between Tom McCarthy and Susan Phillips that took place at the bookstore on the 2nd of February for the centenary was how important radio becomes for Joyce in Finnegan's Wake, mm -hmm. actually. So uh, Finnegan's Wake, which in a sense is a kind of um, spiritual sequel to Ulysses in the way that Ulysses is a spiritual sequel to Portrait of the Artist, um, Joyce doesn't turn away from these technological developments. Um, and I think that's something which... Uh, again, as you say, Alice, is, is that he prefigures Beckett and then as Beckett to uh, take the metaphor which he refers to several times. <laughs> Joyce throws up the ball, Beckett hits it, mm, and, mm, um, mm. And, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, that is all we've got time for. We will be back in a couple of weeks mm. with the next two chapters, which are Scylla and Charybdis and Wandering Rocks. Rocks. Wandering Rocks. Um, yeah, fantastic. Two fantastic chapters. Stay and um, until then, take care. Happy reading. A très bientôt. Thank you for listening to Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses. The text was provided by our partners at Penguin Classics, whose cloth-bound centenary edition of Ulysses is available now from your local independent bookshop. You can also order it from our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, and get your copy shipped from Paris, inked with the famous Shakespeare and Company stamp. If you're enjoying these free readings and want to show your support, the best way is to become a subscriber to our author interview podcast on Spotify, Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. 
In addition to helping fund all the bookshop's non-profit activities, you'll get even more from Kilometer Zero in the form of exclusive bonus episodes recorded in-store and around Paris. Find out more in the episode notes or at shakespeareandcompany.com. Friends of Shakespeare and Company Read Ulysses was conceived and produced at Shakespeare and Company in Paris by me, Adam Biles, in collaboration with our Bloomsday MC, Professor Lex Paulson. Original music is by Alex Fryman, with Flora Hibbard on vocals and production by Adrien Chicot. We'd like to thank all our readers, our partners Hay Festival and Penguin Classics, and you, of course, for listening. Bon voyage, Lex. Bon voyage. Thank you, guys. A très bientôt. I'll be back in uh, yeah, we'll... one second, and we'll set up the, the schedule. Okay. And we should talk about table read, too, but we can chat this yeah, weekend, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, no, 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 WhatsApp. Oh, not WhatsApp. Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not WhatsApp. Not WhatsApp. How, How dare you? All right, guys. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. See, see you in a bit. Take care.